Hi, everyone. I'm Father Graby, and this is the Breakfast Podcast. In this episode, we're going to look at the Statue of Liberty and ask ourselves, what is liberty? Some monuments are so iconic, they become a national symbol. The most obvious example is probably the Eiffel Tower. It's instantly recognizable and a visual shorthand for France itself. We might think of Big Ben in London or the colored domes of St. Basil's in Moscow. I think the Statue of Liberty is the defining symbol of America. There are other contenders, the White House or Mount Rushmore, but to my mind, nothing captures the U.S. in such an iconic, instantly recognizable way. I first visited the Statue of Liberty on a third grade class trip. It was much more accessible then. We climbed right up into the crown and looked out over the harbor. When friends visit New York for the first time, it's always high on their list of things to see. I'll sometimes take them out for a walk on the Brooklyn Bridge, where about halfway over, the statue comes into plain sight. I get to see the statue pretty often, riding a bicycle around the southern tip of Manhattan, or driving out of the Holland Tunnel, and there's always a bit of a thrill at seeing it. Once in a while, I'll meet up with friends for dinner in Battery Park with a panoramic view of Liberty Island, and I almost can't believe it's right there in front of me. It never gets old. It captures so much about this country. There's that great scene at the end of the movie Titanic, when the rescue ship arrives in New York Harbor, and the passengers look up at Lady Liberty towering over them, her torch glowing in the night sky. How many waves of immigrants looked up at that torch? Their hearts must have swelled with anticipation, perhaps some anxiety, but hope that the American dream was real, that a new and better life awaited them on these shores. Whether they were leaving behind tyranny or poverty, they came to this land to start over. The streets were not paved with gold, and many found life difficult in this new world. But they held on to the promise that something better awaited them in the land of the free. That desire for and promise of freedom is so deeply ingrained in the American soul. It's the reason why the Statue of Liberty stands for America itself. This country was founded on the desire for freedom, breaking away from a distant monarchy and charting its own path. That sense of independence, of restlessness is so much a part of the American experience, combined with a great sense of optimism, that anything is possible here, that anyone can grow up to be president in a land that holds liberty to be an inalienable right. But I wonder if we have lost sight of what freedom is really all about. It's one of those words that we use so often that perhaps it's lost some of its meaning. The way words like love or friendship are so easily misused or distorted, so what is freedom? We often think of it as the right to do whatever we want, in contrast to laws and rules that limit our freedom. But that's a pretty childish understanding. Let's take the example of driving. A child might think that things like stop signs, red lights, and double yellow lines impede his freedom, and that he should be able to drive wherever and however he wants. 
Well, take away those red lights and stop signs and what happens? You have at best a massive traffic jam, at worst a deadly situation. Either way, you're not getting very far. But follow those rules of the road, and you can go wherever you want, from coast to coast. The same is true in any field. The great innovators and artists in history were free to write that poem or compose that symphony or defy gravity with that bridge only because they had first learned grammar or played those scales thousands of times or mastered the laws of physics. That's what enabled them to take their art or science to new heights. Ignoring or disregarding these basic rules isn't freedom. It's chaos. It's slavery to confusion. A child who doesn't want to learn how to play an instrument might make a lot of noise, but never music. The same principles apply to the human person, to the art of living well. One of the consequences of original sin, with which we were all conceived, is that we suffer from what's called concupiscence. Concupiscence is an inclination to sin. It means our will is attracted to sin. It's difficult for us to reject it. We like it. It feels good, at least in the moment. Let's take a fairly innocent example. There's a donut sitting on the table. I know I shouldn't eat it, maybe because I gave up sweets for Lent or I'm trying to lose weight. Before the fall, I wouldn't think twice about it. I would have perfect control over my will. My reason would say, eating that donut is a bad idea, and my will would obey it. But that's not usually how it works, is it? That donut draws me in. I keep thinking about it, looking over at it, maybe coming up with excuses to justify eating it. I think to myself, well, you've already given up so much for Lent. Or, you had that good workout this morning. One donut can't hurt. After all, I'm a good person. I deserve it. And so we give in. And then we regret it. We're not alone in that experience. It's pretty universal. St. Paul asked, why do I do the things I shouldn't? Recognizing that is in itself a big step. It means we have a conscience. We're able to discern right from wrong, even if we don't always follow through. Sometimes our conscience doesn't match reality. On one extreme, you could have a scrupulous conscience, meaning you think things are sinful that aren't. On the other extreme, you could have a lax conscience, meaning you think lots of things aren't sinful that actually are. That's probably the far more pervasive distortion nowadays, but both are unhealthy. What we want is a properly formed conscience, when our judgment of a certain action reflects the reality. We judge that lying is wrong, and in fact, it is wrong. Once we know right from wrong, then we have to act accordingly, to choose the right and reject the wrong. Here's where concupiscence comes in and muddies the waters. Even when we know something is wrong, it's not so easy for us to say no and walk away. It's like we're starting the ball game a few runs behind. Just as our mind is a muscle that we exercise, through study and memorization, for example, our will is like a muscle too. If we give in to every whim and fancy, that muscle grows weak and flabby. It doesn't have the strength needed to say no when we're confronted with or tempted by sin. We see what a perfect will looks like when Jesus is tempted in the desert. Right after he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, Jesus goes off to the desert for 40 days of intense prayer and fasting 
before he begins his public ministry. At the end of those 40 days, the devil comes and tempts him in various ways to turn stones into bread, to hurl himself down from the cliff and have angels rescue him, to inherit all the kingdoms of the world. We're all susceptible to these temptations in various forms, for fame or power or comfort. Jesus didn't struggle with these temptations. He rejected them immediately. He wasn't less human because he didn't wrestle with them. He was perfectly human. He shows us what true freedom looks like because he exercises his will with perfect freedom. He's not impaired by doubts or confusion or error. For Jesus, that comes naturally. For you and me, well, we have to work at it. We have to build up that muscle to grow in virtue. That's a habit, and it can go either way. Let's take someone who lies a lot, maybe grew up lying and was never corrected or reprimanded for it. Lying comes easily. It's a bad habit. In a situation where he should tell the truth, but a lie will save him some sort of trouble, it's going to be really difficult for him not to lie. That bad habit is like a ball and chain around his ankle that keeps him from moving forward, from being the full person God made him to be. He can't exercise his will properly, only with great difficulty, and he remains trapped in lies and falsehood. That's not freedom at all. Contrast that with someone who was taught from an early age not to lie. He's so accustomed to telling the truth that the thought of lying never even crosses his mind. That's what real freedom looks like. He's able to flourish as the person God made him to be, his intellect and will fully conforming to and cooperating with the truth. If the astrophysicist always has to debate basic mathematical equations, each time deciding if 2 plus 2 really equals 4, he wouldn't get very far. It's only because those equations are so certain, so ingrained in him, that he's then free and able to design spaceships. Real freedom allows us to soar. We've been looking so far at relatively innocuous examples. When it comes to a misguided understanding of freedom, though, as the ability to do whatever I want, the consequences can be far more serious. A misunderstood liberty soon becomes libertinism, a life devoid of any rules or norms, including in matters of sexuality. The sexual revolution often branded itself in terms of liberation, freeing people from cultural and religious norms that they saw as antiquated and oppressive. A full treatment of this phenomenon far exceeds our capacity here. But I would just touch upon one area that's so pervasive it's hard to ignore. It's the epidemic of pornography. I call it an epidemic for three reasons. The first is how easily accessible it is. Sure, pornography is as old as human history, but it wasn't all that long ago you had to make some effort to obtain it. Buying a dirty magazine or slipping into some seedy emporium, all the while with the risk of being seen and recognized. Shame is an important deterrent, and often a healthy one. Now, pornography is everywhere, in the privacy of one's home, in the immediacy of one's phone. Right in someone's pocket is a potential smorgasbord of it, and it can get dark really quickly. That's the second reason I call it an epidemic. We're not just talking about nudity or even just about sex. Pornography is like a drug that requires ever stronger doses to maintain the high, and every conceivable 
or inconceivable perversion is available to provide it. It carries us along in its spiraling, destructive wake, and we're all affected by it. That's the third and final reason I call it an epidemic. So many people are viewing it, often addicted to it. Those who don't view it are still affected by it, because the many who are bring those viewing habits and the distorted view of the human person and human sexuality into their relationships, marriages, families, workplaces. And so many of them suffer in silence. It's not the kind of thing you generally bring up in conversation. It's embarrassing. And the devil always thrives in isolation, in secrecy, in hidden places that leave us alone and ashamed. This wake of devastation has lots of parallels to the drug crisis. It is a drug, a poison. And we should be outraged at the pornography industry. We should hate what they have done to our society, to our children who are exposed to this at an increasingly young age, despite all safeguards, to our young men who grow up with a twisted view of relationships and sex, thinking that this is normal. This is what men do. This is what women expect and want. A former senator from New York, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, coined the phrase, defining deviancy down. He was referring to our attitudes towards urban crime and violence, but it perfectly describes how numb and complacent we've become towards pornography and sexual deviancy. Pornography is many things, but one thing it's definitely not is victimless. Like every sin, pornography is a lie. A fantasy. But it's also a distortion, an inversion that's one of the devil's trademarks. It takes an act that should be one of self-giving love and twists it into selfish pleasure. Sex, divorced from love and sacrifice, quickly degenerates into violence. An act that creates life now harms it. And it is a favorite of the devil who hates the physical. He hates the human body because it was through a human body that God redeemed fallen man and rescued souls from hell. It's the reason the devil hates Our Lady, for from her immaculate womb the Word became flesh. Many of you listening are struggling with this social disease. If you're fortunate enough not to be, you know many who are. I encourage you to be open about it with a trusted friend, someone who lives the faith and can walk with you. The most important thing I can say to you is, never ever get discouraged. God knows how weak we all are. If we weren't, we wouldn't need a Redeemer. Sure, this stuff is personal and embarrassing, and we can feel a mixture of disgust and despair at times when we can't break out of these patterns, these chains that enslave us. The devil does not care about your sin, about what you're looking at, how often, and why. He does care about you giving up, about not wanting to be free, about resigning yourself to this fate. Holiness is not in the goal, but in the journey. I know that sounds like a cheesy pep talk, but it's true. The saints weren't born with a halo. They had the same struggles and temptations as the rest of us, but they never gave up. Every time they fell, they got back up and kept going. We wake up every morning and say, I'm going to be a saint today. And we go to bed every night and say, I'll try again tomorrow. I mentioned the parallels between pornography and drugs. 
I was recently watching a miniseries on the opioid crisis, and I was struck by the heroism of the people who got themselves clean. It was a Herculean task, and really hard, but they are just so grateful to be clean, to be free. How badly do we want that same freedom, the freedom to walk in the path God has set for us? There's an episode in the Gospel where Jesus asks a paralytic lying by the poolside, do you want to be well? He asks that of each one of us. Do we want to be well? Do we want to be free? In the second part of the Divine Comedy, Dante ascends Mount Purgatory. At each level, he is purged of one of the deadly sins that weighs him down and impedes his progress. The canticle begins at the base of the mountain, and the tone is heavy, gloomy. It's like a drug addict just entering rehab, scared and skeptical of the road ahead. As he ascends, the mood lightens. He's more in control, more free, like that addict who's finishing a course of treatment and is ready to reclaim his life. Towards the end of the canticle, his guide, Virgil, leaves him as he's about to enter heaven. The Roman poet says, Expect no longer words or signs from me. Now is your will upright, wholesome, and free, and not to heed its pleasure would be wrong. I crown and mitre you, Lord of yourself. Lord of yourself. It means we have the self-mastery, always with God's grace, that Jesus had in the desert. We have, as St. Paul says, the freedom for which Christ set us free. On the base of the Statue of Liberty is the famous poem by Emma Lazarus that says, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. How many thousands, millions of immigrants passed that lady, that bright torch, as they embarked on a new life. That's what God promises us on a much deeper level. Mother Church holds the light of truth that guides us through the storms and choppy waters of this life until we, too, arrive safely at the harbor of heaven when we are finally home, when we are finally free.